so much. It's really great to be here with all sorts of people I can't see, but I can imagine. I want to tell you a story about one of the most remarkable people I've had the good fortune to meet. Her name is Rebecca Hosking. She grew up on a small Devon farm and told me that she said she always felt most at home in nature. She found that, you know, taking pictures was the perfect excuse to just get outside and wander. She did a degree in photography, and when she graduated, she was urged to apply for a bursary with the BBC's Natural History Unit. No woman had ever won this bursary, but Rebecca did. And two years later, she was a producer making the kinds of movies that have made the Natural History Unit famous around the world. But she wasn't happy because everywhere she went, she saw the same things, horrible, ecological devastation, huge monoculture farms, dead zones where no one, no one could film anything. She said what was so annoying was here was a huge subject just staring her in the face, but all anybody would do was complain about how it messed up the schedules, trying to frame shots that left the garbage out. So she got sneaky. She persuaded her editor to let her make a film in Hawaii. She didn't say when she pitched it to him that every single shot would focus on garbage despoiling the ocean. I sold it, she said to me, as a film about beautiful people saving animals, but she didn't get very specific about what they were saving animals from. Rebecca's plan was to change the world. So she made the film and it went out and nothing happened. No response. The credits rolled, another show started and life went on. What had gone wrong? She felt sure that if people could just see what she'd see, they'd react as she reacted. I mean, after all, she knew that television had changed the Vietnam War. She knew that Michael Burke's coverage of the Ethiopian famine had changed aid and fundraising forever. So why hadn't her film done what she desperately, desperately wanted it to do? It made her think, and it made me think, as I was talking to her, about how change does happen. And there are lots of theories. The first theory is that history repeats itself, but really it doesn't. Then there's another theory that says change is always lying latent within society and at some moment it bursts forth and then something happens, but actually quite how it's going to turn out, well, that's not terribly obvious. And then there's another theory that says that if 3.5 percent of the population changes its opinion on something, then change really happens. And the, prob the problem with all of these theories is that unlike uh, scientific theories, like the theory of gravity, um, sometimes they turn out to be right and sometimes they turn out to be wrong. So why didn't Rebecca's film work? 
Right. Why didn't the, any of these theories of change apply? And why was it that 10 years later, similar film, same subject, has a huge impact? What's going on here? Well, it's actually hard to know because you can't rerun the experiment. The deep reason is that life itself is inherently unpredictable. And it's unpredictable because it's complex, which means that yes, there are patterns, but they just don't repeat themselves regularly. It means that very small things can have a huge disproportionate impact, but sometimes they don't. And it means that expertise can't really keep up because the system keeps changing so quickly. So we can be generally certain, as Rebecca was, that people do care about the environment, but it's extremely ambiguous what they're prepared to do on its behalf. In exactly the same way, we are generally very certain that epidemics will happen, but it is specifically ambiguous when, or where, or what disease. And we can be generally confident seems quell. It's just that we don't know how long they take or how they'll develop or which diseases may be absolutely impossible to develop vaccines for. Complexity is why experts in forecasting now say that they cannot predict accurately beyond about 400 days. And that's if they're really good at it. They always check the outcome of their forecast so that they learn to self-correct if they're extremely open-minded and they do this almost all the time. For the rest of us, maybe the maximum we can look at is about 150 days. And um, even then, the experts and us were going to get it wong some of the time. Ineradicable uncertainty is a fact of life. And it's a really uncomfortable one, not knowing, not being able to predict. It makes us so anxious that we become really easy targets for the fantasy that with enough data and enough algorithms, we could predict everything. It's such a seductive idea, getting all that anxiety of uncertainty out of our lives. GPS can predict that it will take me exactly 36 minutes to walk from my front door to the nearest post office. It'll take exactly six minutes if I drive. Amazon says it can predict which books I'm going to like. There are apps that will predict your children's personality and their life outcomes. Apps that will predict who will make a fantastic worker at a fast food joint and of those which ones might commit crimes. It's so tempting, enough data, and everything can be knowable, and all that awful uncertainty eradicated. Just imagine if we really, really got this right. You could know everything about your life from now till the day you die. Just a huge to-do list that your life spends time crossing off. All predicted, done, move on, predicted, done, move on. But then it turns out it actually takes longer than 36 minutes to get to my post office 
if you take the dog. And Amazon's recommendations aren't really very useful to me because they keep recommending to me the books that I've written, which you know, really, I, I don't really want to read again. Um, it turns out that the parenting apps that you can get to predict your kids' futures encourage you to spend more time looking at them than talking to your kids. And all those apps that are designed to hire the perfect employee, well, actually, it turns out they keep hiring the same people, even though every corporation says that what they really want is diversity. The deal we make with technology, hoping that it'll take risk and uncertainty out of our life, is that it takes life out of our life. So what could we do instead? Well, we could let our minds wander and explore and do experiments, see what works and what doesn't. Even the experiments that don't work show us something about us, about ourselves, about the world that we live in. They're actually how we develop our sense of ourselves and our sense of our place in the world at any given moment. Instead of trying to predict just instead of kind of trying to follow the instruction in the profile that's been manufactured for us. This kind of wandering and experimentation is exactly what artists do. They start projects that they can't define at the outset. They take a risk that it's the right idea or a starting point, and they could be wrong. They have to invent and discover as they go along. The novelist Sebastian Barry told me that you have to accept that as a novelist that at any moment, everything could change. That's why artists do what they do, not because the outcome's uncertain, but because it isn't. Or you can see exactly the same thing in talking to the scientists at CERN, and they devote their whole lives to trying to figure out theories and test hypotheses and to discover things that it may turn out don't actually exist. Not because they're certain that they're right, but because they know that they don't know. The quest is the point. The fact that the work is incredibly hard is what gives it meaning. That's why they never stop. And that's why Rebecca Hosking didn't stop either. After her film went out, she went home to her Devon village, Monbury, and she was extremely disappointed, heartbroken. Why hadn't the film done what she wanted it to do? What should she have done differently? What did she want people to do? What did she want to do now? But she was determined, so, so she kept sort of chewing on the problem. And finally, she decided to just do something really small and see if she could persuade the people in her village just to stop using plastic bags. Forget the global stage. Just do something simple. And she was wrong again. Because this time the entire world's media turned up and camped out on her doorstep, 
CNN, NBC, Sky, camera crews from Canada, from China, from all over the world came to see what was going on in this tiny little village in Devon. A whole delegation from a Chinese province brought her a cloth bag and on it was written, our province follows Modbury. How many people live in your, in your province, she asked. 32 million. That was the point when the world's attitude to plastic started to change. Why did Rebecca's first experiment fail and why did the second one succeed? We will never know. And even if we knew, it wouldn't give us any guarantee that it would work again. It's impossible to predict. What matters is that uncertainty didn't stop her. She wasn't passive waiting for the perfect data set with a perfect algorithm to emerge. Uncertainty, Hannah Arendt says, is the defining characteristic of the future because it's where all the options, the opportunities, the choices, the decisions lie. It gives us freedom. Uncertainty gives us freedom. So the real question is, are we ready to use it? Thank you. <laughs>